Hey, hey, you're listening to Talking Tunes, and joining me today, Talking Tunes is... The DJ Producer, or should I say, Luke McMillan, a.k.a. The DJ Producer. Hey, Luke, how you doing, man? Not too fucking bad, mate. Wicked, man, good stuff. Uh, I've got to say, you know, a bit of a fanboy here, but uh, hopefully I won't gush too much. Um, I really want to talk tunes with you, uh, and you've sent me these 15 tunes, and I'm like, wow, this is brilliant. Lots of your own stuff on here as well, which I'm well excited to get into later on in the show. But uh, yeah, put these shoes together. This first one, K-Rock and uh, DJ Cheese, I'm a homeboy. I'm like, hang on, what's going on here? What's going on here indeed? Why am I playing this tune? Dude, DJ Cheese was the first DMC World DJ Champion in 1986. He was the first guy to bring scratching to the Disco Mix Club competition because before it was a scratching competition it was a mixing competition this guy from new york called dj cheese who had worked with a few producers who'd records i'd known came in and obliterated the thing i mean in the middle of his set he handcuffed himself while still scratching two turntables so seeing that as a fucking what was i 13 year old it, that was like oh my god and this actual tune like people will know this tune from the samples that me and my friend hellfish took for a track we did called way the homeboy uh, this underpins that, but this tune, this is like 1986, this is me right in the middle of my hardcore b-boy phase, because hip-hop is the birth of everything as far as me is concerned, so this tune is about as hard as it gets, the wording is just supreme, it just tells it as it is, I'm a homeboy and I like to make noise, <laughs> if, the music's, if the music's too loud, that's too damn bad, it's, it's been like the premise of my whole life, so ending up sampling it and then it becoming part of our own folklore is something crazy talk about recycle or die yeah illegal or not that's another conversation but um no these things seem to have resonated my whole life and and even now i'm shit, back to collecting old school hip-hop records again because i seem to have everything else in my collection so shit just sleeps around man yeah it's uh, a life anthem man I mean, the thing looping around, I mean, we're talking 1986, but I'm thinking, you know, when people look back at retro stuff, whatever the year, it's always 30 years ago, and I'm thinking now, and I didn't want to get into it too early, but like 30 years ago, it was 1991. See people making like old school rave again. Like you most recently had one out, like We Are Still Here compilation, right? I saw in that DJ producer, I expected some hardcore, but I was like, break it hardcore. Totally, man, we're not dead. Hardcore refuses to die. I don't know, man, like I come from original hardcore, you know, even before I found like Gabba House or any of that stuff, you know, when we first got into rave, you know, there was house music and then it was basically house or hardcore. And hardcore was like, you know, breakbeat music and suburban bass and, you know, the prodigy and that just had way more energy than like, you know, gospel vocals and pianos. So I chose hardcore, man, or did hardcore choose me? So breakbeat hardcore is like, for an English raver, that's first and foremost. I mean, that even carried through my whole me finding myself as a producer 
producer and then creating our own version of hardcore techno which is totally breakbeat underpinned from any of us UK producers point of view so that's just yeah again 30 year cycles man here we are like breakbeat hardcore like jungle just exploded and you know I, I like that awkward bit you know between early rave and breakbeat music before it came jungle you know when it was just really hardcore like just hardcore breakbeat music I love that phase and it didn't last long enough you know so there's more to be explored in that and now that we have the technology and yeah it's crazy I did I did a gig three weeks ago in Bristol playing 28 year old records to about 26 year old kids that's mental with the same with the same fucking energy man loads of, like dude hardcore yeah it's never gonna go away it can't be argued with and that just vibe it just keeps resurfacing in different fucking you know different guises man it's crazy so yeah then loving it in all its forms man and yeah here we go again so if I was gonna put you on the spot and say pick a year for all the years from 1986 to now what year would you pick 91 92 haha <laughs> love it I'm still buying records from those years now that I didn't get that's how many records were produced in those two years they were so important to everything that come ever since you know I'm just everything that I do little bits of me you know definitely comes from the 90s because the 90s definitely seemed to be a very more creative space than anything that really preceded it you know afterwards just technology helped us cover the same ground but in a different technological format so it come out different but essentially it's the same fucking thing man it's rave isn't it you know it all comes from rave and those are the essential rave years as far as I'm concerned you know just as I said essential rave years you hear the KLF's what time is love leaking in there perfect Babe, me saying that then just made the hairs stand up on my arms so fucking hard. You don't know, mate. Why did you pick the trans version of this? Yeah, so coming from being a hardcore b-boy, you know, 1989 was really a transition phase. I went into college as a hardcore b-boy wearing a kangol, didn't give a fuck about house music. And I met a guy who really gave a fuck about house music and had a pair of Technics. And for a b-boy who didn't have Technics, I, I was instantly besotted with him, probably his Technics more, but then his choice of music. And he started to do these little parties in Glastonbury, these house parties. And I just wanted to go to watch the DJ Techniques, you know, but he was playing house music and one of the very first first parties that I went to at the beginning of the night he pulled out this black sleeve with this green number one on it and it just said what time is love you played that record fucking hell it was like hearing something that you'd never heard you knew it was important but you didn't know what it was and honestly like hearing the KLF in that state even before that was like was that must have been the end of 1989 well it was really 1991 when the KLF came to prominence in like a pop music kind of format so the KLF was like really the founders of Acid House first and foremost in my head some of the first Acid House music I heard was KLF's What Time Is Love and the KLF's 3AM Eternal like those original number one and two the trance versions so so they're at the beginning of everything for me and I, I, I'll argue that to the day I die. Like the first big rave I went to, Energy, at Docklands Arena in London, when we came back from that rave, someone put on the KLF's Chill Out and, well, I've listened to that album now for like 31 years. I listened to it on every flight I ever got on, so I've probably listened to that album over a thousand times easily. Yeah, dude, they infected me, man, and it's still here. And they are still the kings of Discordians. It was an art project that went totally wrong and blew up in their face. So much so, they burned all the proceeds and hid for 30 years. I think that's fucking genius, man. (laughs) 
So look, if we're going to talk about things we've listened to a thousand times over, I'm going to go into sort of fanboy mode. I mean, when I was a young man now, because I didn't really go to many raves, but I got tapes, and one of the tapes I got was uh, yourself and Groove Rider Universe Into Orbit 1992. You were playing Breakbeat Hardcore, and I say, that tape, I listened to you on one side and Groove Rider on the other side. I listened to that a million times, I'm sure. What I don't get right is, I mean, you're only about a year older than me. Like, how did you get to play at Universe? That's, that's what I want to know. Because I live in the town of Bath, the town of Bath is the second smallest city in the United Kingdom. It's also only 10 kilometers from Bristol. And I originally actually come from just outside of Shepton Mallet, kind of near Glastonbury. So I came from there and when I met my girlfriend in 1991, who was here in college in, in Bath, I just met her one night at a club night she came to, which was run by Universe. She abducted me, seduced me, and we never left each other. So I ended up living in Bath, but the guys from Universe were based in Bath and they had a couple of resident DJs but I was just like need to get involved need to get involved we'd already met at a free party they did this club night so I did I did that little night for them they already had um, DJs Dai and Jody who were known as Sublove but you know Jody went on to become Jody Wistonoff working with Nick Warren who's a huge house guy now and DJ Dai well that's DJ Dai from Full Cycle so you know massive fucking pedigree right from the start but you know they had their things set up and you know Breakbeat music was like all around me but Universe always had this kind of European kind of edge to them you know right from their very first party you know they booked Fierce Ruling Diva from Lower East Side Records in Holland huge fucking heroes of mine also like Orlando Vaughan who was known as Frequency on the same label like the biggest Euro bangers you could get again like you know Belgian techno to me is, is as important as like you know the birthing UK rave scene but as important as each other but everyone in UK just focused on UK things but I was like you know the world's a bigger place than just fucking UK man and there's a bigger world out there because I'm hearing the records so so then we got Universe Cup finally came along you know I played that first gig playing breakbeat but it became very obvious that you know everyone was playing breakbeat and it was like we're all playing the same music there's there's no real differentiation so by the time I got the second option to play Mind Body Soul and it was like I'm on the main stage again with Di and Jody and, and me and I'm like <laughs> but then they booked this guy DJ Tanith from Berlin who I was aware of because of the Germany like the Mayday scene and European techno stuff I'm like well I have just enough of those records to do a set I'm just gonna fucking do it just to support the German guy so he doesn't stick out like a sore thumb that was my only premise to play techno that night and look what fucking happened and 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 that was it so the choice was made for me I come from a breakbeat background but playing techno that night literally the Monday after that gig the, the fucking universe offices were phoning so hard Paul Shuri was ringing me going dude you, you need to give us like your number direct because people are ringing to book you like fuck it was you know I was 18 years old man I don't know what the fuck was going on dude it was amazing so literally the, the choice was you know made for me you know so breaks will always be in my blood but I I had this European thing that, you know, Dennis Easy Groove played with it a little bit, but he always played kind of a mash of real everything in his set. Uh, back in that day, it was really hard to accept that. Now, anything goes, but 30 years ago, you didn't know what to do with it. But me, I was like, fuck, I just played techno one time. And they were kind of obvious techno records as well, but I put them in such a context that no one had fucking ever heard the way that they were played that way before, including myself. And it was like, okay, I think the choice has been made, man. That is literally what happened and how it happened, man.
there's only very few people, and I can probably list off, in my mind, about five or six people who actually brought a lot of that Dutch-German stuff over. And yeah, that totally sets you apart. And I don't think anybody really knew, they liked it, but I don't think anybody really knew where it was coming from or what it was. By the time you get to 94, 95, Gabba is totally influencing the UK, right? You've got Health and Scouter and stuff like that. So I think you were an early pioneer in that respect. I guess so. Having places like Dreamscape and Helter Skelter, seeing this additional rave energy that, you know, couldn't be denied. The Northerners were going for it. You know, the Scottish, you know, Scottish had it before anyone else, man. Like the Resurrections, you know, doing Resurrection end of 93 and, and 94. Because, you know, the further north you went, the more kick drummy it got. You know, you get to like, even Doncaster Warehouse in the early days. I remember playing there at the end of 1993 for Mick Zone, who was already having like, Carl Cox was going in there playing just strictly Gabba sets. You know, GTO were playing live in there. It was like outside of like the orbit in, in Leeds, you know, the other place I had to get to was fucking got to get to Resman because that's where the people who know that music was. So yeah, once I played club night in Sterling called the Fubar, fucked up beyond all recognition, played that night for the organizers of Res, they were like, you're playing Resman, fucking done. So I knew my people were there. It's just, you know, down here we're still very breakbeat saturated. And of course, jungle come from London. So the more south you got, it just became more fucking alien, you know? So, you know, Midlands was kind of cool. Then you sort of like Liverpool, Manchester, they kind of got awareness. You hit Newcastle, Pontine, and you've got the Judgment Days. Well, that's pretty much where Resurrection started, actually. So there was a north-south divide with kick drums for quite a long time, but having gigs far up north and places like Dreamscape and Helter Skelter, seeing that for what it was, then we had the techno rooms, man, and that just just kicked it off, didn't it? You know, and then we had nights like North and Steam in Real and up in Stoke-on-Trent. It just, even Club Kinetic, you know, that had like the biggest gab rooms going outside of fucking Skelters, man. They were nuts. So it was everywhere. You just had to know where to go to look for it or you had to be situated in the right place, almost even. So look, I'm gonna have to drag you away and talk a bit about this one. Setup System Factory, uh, 1992 Belgium techno at its finest, right? Hoovers and all that sort of stuff. This is the absolute upper echelon of the craziest Belgian rave record you could get. Understand, you know, artists like the Prodigy, a lot of the content, the noises in there, it was a direct correlation to these sounds that you got in those crazy Belgian rave records. You know, I'm so besotted with those records, it, it, probably even more so than the UK ones, because again, you know, coming from hip hop, with hip hop, you, you search for the root elements, which are the breakbeats, you know, like funk and soul records and that, which, you know, I've vast knowledge of that as well. But when it comes to rave and UK rave records, a lot of those early ones, they were just sampling all the Belgian stuff, which I was, you know, playing in the first place, which probably enforced me playing Gabba then after, you know, it's all <laughs> come from the same place, European kick drums that got bigger. I mean, guys like Holy Noise, DJ Waxweasel is a huge, huge Gabba artist now. He's been working for 30 years, man. It's, yeah, it's, it's, cra it's crazy. It's crazy to think how the music, like, yeah, de develop in different places for sure. you hear the elements on this one the blaring synth and like this bleepy bleepy stuff that's as you say yeah you can see well how the prodigy were influenced by that piano breakdowns bleeps it uh, absolutely do that's you know the, the rave uk sound in its first essence as nutty as it did because of crazy belgian rave records like this and i then love that mix of how the uk reinterpreted that and took those old hip-hop breaks and speed them up and you know yeah newfound funk man that was UK adapting something that was coming from Europe. So then, yeah, for that brief moment, we 
had something else, but then breakbeats and sub bass took over and black culture really punched its way through and jungle became a bigger thing. And then hardcore just turned back into fucking Gabba hardcore, man. And there we are. There's two things on its own different paths again, man. There's a great documentary on YouTube, you can probably find it elsewhere, called The Sound of Belgium. It talks about Belgium from Second World War up until, yeah, the 90s. Bought it on the day of release, mate. Bought it on the day of release, absolutely. Really important documentation of like the roots of Belgian techno and how that did, even coming from their early dances of listening to organ music, man, and seeing yeah. their development, going through to like large clubs like the Bocaccia, that place where R&S Records was just king, man. And yeah. well, yeah, same for me. As half of, half of my Belgian record collection is R&S Records. <laughs> Simple as that, man. Okay, listen to this. This tune coming here. Die Witness, Observing the Earth. Let's do it! It is seminal Gabba, isn't it? I mean, it, it, but it isn't it. And hearing this tune, you know, that same night when Tanif played and then hearing Tanif set and he played Nine is a Classic, that was the first time I ever heard that that night. So like, I thought I did really well playing this tune. Then I heard Tanif set and he played No Women Allowed and Nine Millimeter. I was well fucking put in my place, mate. <laughs> it's like, you don't know fucking Europe. You got educated. Fully educated. I was like sat at the back of the stage sucking my thumb, just being fully educated, man. But Jesus, talk about blindly having my thumb right on the pulse. You know, even Tanif's manager at the end came, said, oh, you know, we've, we should really talk, you know, as you come to Germany. I was just so terrified and actually coming up really hard on a pill. I just ran away. <laughs> so I probably a wasted opportunity there, but just, you know, to know that I actually was on the right path by listening to a real European really doing it. Yeah, that, that did actually fill me with like, okay, you know, I might have played separate from the way the UK guys play, but I'm definitely on point with this European guy, man. Who knows? I, I had absolutely no idea at that point. And then you wind forward 48 hours later, fucking hell, it turns out that um, the DJ producer is now a techno DJ. <laughs> fucking what, mate? Probably 18 main stage in it. Probably the biggest raves going on in the UK. Was at your feet. I mean, you must have been, what day of the week is it like? It was quite overwhelming, man, for sure, what day of the week it is, you know. But, you know, at the same time, it's all I wanted, you know. I was I was scratching records in, in my bedroom in 1985 at the age of 13, using an amplifier's on-off switch for the fucking transformer cuts. Like, this is what I wanted. That's why I've been doing it a lot, because the want was, you know, I can contribute to this. I know I've got something that I can do and people really like it. So the people always decide, man. I could have played that techno set on that main fucking stage. I could have emptied the tent. That would have been the fucking end of the DJ producer. Like, what was I fucking thinking? I could have just played the fucking Sons of a Loop the Loop era again and, and it would have been like a nice safe house. And yeah. But no, I had to be fucking stupid and dangerous, didn't I? I don't know, let's play this Gabba record. Let's start with 2001 A Space Odyssey, but LP, cut up for 33, takes too long. I'll play it on 45. That'll speed it up. <laughs> That's a weird one, isn't it? So, but, and then preceded by playing Gabba music that no one's just like fucking, I look back now, it's like, cool. You know, the, the blind stupidness of youth can be completely fucking amazing, can't it? It really can. <laughs> So look, Thy Witness, Dutch guy, obviously Gabba, 
Predominantly or only coming from the Netherlands, what do you think? At that time, definitely. I mean, you know, Die Witness, it's like, like that, that was like Midtown Records, you know. Yeah. Again, Tanif, he played Sperminators, No Women Allowed. That's that's the first record I ever heard on the Rotterdam Records label. Die was fully being schooled, so it's like, okay, yeah. Midtown Records, well, Rotterdam Records is a, a subsidiary of Midtowns. So then I had to go back and like learn, learn these new fucking, find out where these labels were coming from. And yeah, you know, it took about a year, but then, you know, finally, hooking up with a, a woman called Jane Howard who ran a night in London called Knowledge. Uh, that was, you know, really like a high profile, like fucking quite a hardcore techno night for London. But, you know, I got in there and from getting in there, actually meeting heroes like GTO enforced me that I was on the right path and actually meeting Gordon Matthewman who ran Edge Records, you know, DJ Edge. I briefly met him in Knowledge and then we were doing a night down in Plymouth called Revelation where my mate John actually booked him. So that was him there, and then that was the connection made, and, and then Edge Records started doing Gabba music. It was like, this is what we're meant to be doing, definitely. Yeah, Edge is a classic label. I don't think everything that came out on Edge is pure gold, right? And again, it's not breakbeat hardcore, It's, it, but it's, it's it's kind of hard to pin anywhere, really, isn't it, in terms of genre. Hard techno is what I'd call it. Well, definitely. I mean, he, he was licensing stuff from like the um, the structure label in Germany, which is like Force Inc. Records, which is, you can get more fucking hardcore European if you tried, man. Like, you know, Force Inc. was a label to be reckoned with. I was playing all that stuff. So, you know, to then finally, you know, just off the cuff ask him, can we make a tune? And then we end up making a tune. Like, it couldn't have been in a more relevant techno place for UK if it tried. Like, again, talk about fucking riding high and taking the piss, asking the question at the right time and getting a fucking yes. It's like, right, let's do it. And then we were doing it. It's just crazy, man. You need to tell me, right? I've never known the answer to this question. Where's this vocal come from? This vocal, you need to check. Go, go and Google Chantel the Realm. Right. That's the original. And they, actually, it's, it only appears as an a cappella. There's two like Euro sounding tunes, and in between the tracks, there's this fucking a cappella. Dude, the a cappella doesn't even appear in the fucking tune. So I've never got my head around this vocal, but this this vocal haunted me all my life. Little bits in, you know, really early Euro tunes. Lots and lot of people have used this vocal. Loads of little bits. This tune is like sort of forward wind about a decade. When me and Simon Underground, you know, got the invite to go and play at Thunderdome, which was a big deal because, you know, Thunderdome was just the yeah. most upper echelon of anything to do with hardcore techno ever. When we actually went in there with, you know, our UK attitude, and we were playing, you know, kind of crossbones, like mid-tempo doomy stuff just to kind of try and fit in. But listening to the way all the other Dutch guys made their music, you know, yeah. I come from the chart background at that point, doing like 190 to 220 BPMs and wearing this fucking Heineken musical resonating at this 150 BPM kick drum. I was standing there, it's like, just sounds like a slow kick drum and machine noises, doesn't it? I was like, I, was like, mm, I could do that. I'll try that when I get home. So I got home, literally, I wrote the drum track, you know, and the drum track was there. I was like, but yeah, that sounds like fucking Thunderdome. I was going through a folder and just like found the vocal. I was like, oh, I wonder. Just dropped it in on it. 
and I shat myself. It was like, <laughs> holy fuck, listen to that. Move, move the vocals around a little bit. So you've got the dub version and the vocal version. Yeah, and then that, that tune goes back to Holland like half a year later and ends up on about 17 different Dutch compilations and basically in one fast swoop, made my name in Holland. Fucking mental. Because of course that's the night break, not that you're thinking about it, but like, it's like bringing Coles to Newcastle, bringing hardcore Gabba to the Dutch. It's another case of exactly what I always wanted, completely by accident, man, you know, you know, not a want to fit in, it's like, you know, I come from a techno background, that's just like fucking chunky, distorted techno, man, let's have a go at that. Boom, holy shit, just... Incredible, and yeah, like you really gave our mine and Simon's label Rebel Scum really forced it in the forefront all of a sudden, and everyone was like scrabbling to backtrack trying to find copies of the previous eight releases. That just crazy, and it was like you know then Rebel Scum definitely became like an alternative to Death Chant without being Death Chant. It was a more sinister technological construct. I, I don't know, man. There wasn't as many rap samples, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck it now. <laughs> It, it, again, it's just one of those moments in time is, you know, it's the tune I probably almost shouldn't have done, but then it got me to, again, another place exactly where I wanted to be. Just yeah. fucking incredible, man. And all down to an old house music classic. Gotta fucking love that, ain't you? I'm going to bring you back to an earlier point where you were saying you started DJing when you were in 1985 when you were 13 and you were using hard cuts for doing mixes. I've noticed in your own DJing style as well, you, you're quite fond of the old cuts, you know, cutting, cutting the volume completely in time with the music to add that extra emphasis. Like, that's probably where that came from, right? Exactly. I, I was brought up on, you know, New York master mixes, and I, you know, like listening to like Latin Rascals doing re-edits of tracks where it's almost like they take one track and, you know, staccato edit a snare and like all these weird... You knew it was the tune, but it sounded all fucked up and wrong. And then four or five years, like really my first mega DJ experience of hearing a DJ fuck me up completely was like DJ Frankie Bones. Not just at Energy in London, but he came to a gig called Tribal Dance in Bath and that set, I might have taken a lot of acid, but I swear to God, that fucking set, it wasn't like listening to a DJ set, it was like listening to an hour and a half like DJ edit. You couldn't hear the mixes, there was just beats and things flying in everywhere, it's like bits of things and you know, loops off of like orbital records but with a fucked up breakbeat like they've done these re-edits, it was like your DJing isn't meant to sound like a mix, it's it's meant to sound mixed. Bits of things coming in in wrong places. Start by playing the end of the tune, get rid of it, and then start it from the front and just fuck with people. Like, like that, I was like, right, that's how you DJ then. That's how you have to DJ. And I practiced it. It was like taking like my hip hop techniques and just re-engineering it to kind of sound like a Bones Breaks master mix, but live DJed. And yeah, those cuts and me cutting bits out and you know dropping emphasis on snares and stuff. It you fucking feel it on the dance floor, man. I know I've experienced it, so I just like that style. It really annoys some people I know it fucking does but frankly I don't care because it's just how I DJ I want it to sound like drastic like it's emergency you know everything is like everything done in like emergency kind of style like it, it needs to be done like now you know that's yeah it's just I guess that's just my style man fuck <laughs>
bit of jungle. All right, let's talk a bit of jungle. Source direct, stone killer. All right, before you go any further, I'm gonna correct you right there, mate. That's not jungle. This is fucking drum and bass, dude. Yeah. Ooh. Huge pause. There's like tumbleweeds just rolled through the studio. Do you know what? Now listen, like a tune like this, because you know, metalheads, for me, just making the hair stand up on my arms, fucking listening to that, fucking hell. Metalheads is an extension of the Reinforced Records label, yeah? Undeniable. Yeah. And Reinforced Records for UK is as important to old school hardcore as, say, Moving Shadow was, you know? It was it, Reinforced, Moving Shadow, suburban base they all come from the same place so then seeing that evolution from reinforced to like the even the first metalheads release doc scott's rider's ghost or whichever it was fucking it just sounded like it sounded like something else i mean there was lots of like really fast breakbeat records coming out and you like say a good breakbeat hardcore was getting so stupid to the point where yeah it just kind of jungled itself out and all of the camps and you know jazzy elements were coming in and yeah that was definitely sounding a bit more I don't know what is that, but then Metalheads, there was something in the template. I don't know what it was. And even Goldie's productions, there's something quite fucking sinister about them. You know, there's this almost cinematicness to them to a degree, you know? And I think just that ethos resonated all the way through the fucking Metalheads catalogue. When Source Direct come along and put this thing out, me and my production partner, Chris Maxey, we did a lot of drum and bass together. We heard this record, fucking hell. It flipped our digits completely, you know. So it, listen to the tune. I mean, it doesn't even get going till three and a half minutes in. It's fucking unreal. Talk about creating a sense of atmosphere and not knowing what is coming next. It just fucking amazing. I do think that influenced me quite seriously on some psychological level where it was 1997 where we moved from 12-bit samplers and having an, an Atari sequence everything to when we got our first PC and with a PC you could sample inside the computer so we weren't limited for sampling space anymore so all of a sudden you can sample these big atmospheres and actually write tunes with fucking intros that take three and a half minutes you know and yeah I'm, I'm guilty of it myself in some of my Def Chant productions even but yeah dude I hate a tune that just, it's like, go, understand it, here we go, fuck that, where's where's the build up, where's the, where's the feel, where's the feel coming from, do you know what I mean, it's like music for fucking idiots, I like, I like it to take over you, you to get drawn into it, and you know, once you're so sucked inside it, then it just fucking annihilates you, like, that's what music's meant to do, man, and tunes like this just, it, it did it to me in a way that I hadn't heard music do it to me in a long time, and it was like, yeah, this is like drum and bass music has arrived. It does scare some people, and it's like, oh yeah, you know, jungle's more understandable. Yeah, it is. I, I, I like that sense of, I don't know what's fucking going on with this music, man. I love that. I just, and I even take that into some of my own productions as well. So yeah, talk about tunes that affect us. You know, I, I make music, but you know, I'm a lover of music. But this 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 show is called Talking Tunes, isn't it? What we're doing with, we are talking tunes, mate. And like, you know, but I became a DJ because I'm a lover of music. And when you hear a tune that fucking hurt you so bad, you you just can't stop playing it and can't stop playing it. And Source Direct Stone Killer is just one of those fucking tunes, man. Absolutely. So I think I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask you anyway. Where do you stand on uh, breakcore? I think it's just another extension, you know, even to a point, you know, I'm partially responsible because if you listen to my choices, you got fucking the Source Direct there and then there's tracks with kick drums and fucking hoovers and then things that go too fast for their own good. Yeah, that's me also. Break cause all of that.
But in the five minutes this tune's got going, I could have played six breakcore tunes. There you go, mate. Exactly. It's, there's different eras of breakcore, isn't there? You know, the, the first, like, the digital hardcore recordings era of breakcore, where it was just, like, very violent jungle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's got that. And then you, you know, get to the end of the, the, the noughties and Planet Mew have just, like, taken it and fucking run with it. And then when you get Venetian Snares is born, it's like everything game over, man. <laughs> you know, so however extreme you are, there's always going to be someone that's more extreme than you. You know, for years, it, it, I, I felt guilty for playing what I did because it was just so fucked up and more violent than anyone else. Then I went to Belgium and heard how they really play breakcore, and I felt like a fucking happy hardcore DJ, mate. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> you, know, you know, there's always someone more mental than you are, but in order to find that fine balance of what you like in music, you've got to push the boundaries so hard, and I think that that's kind of what killed the breakcore scene almost. It just got so ridiculous, it just, everyone, the music burned itself out and so did the crowd, you know, so it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it still exists, it's, it, it kind of, you know, it went underground and grew up and, again, like Stasma, Stasma is an amazing human and he makes fucking amazing music as well, you know, and it, it's intellectual, it's intelligent, it makes you fucking think. Here we go, this tune here, this tune here. This is an example of that. Double Face, Monkey's Revenge. This is your mix, is it? This is my remix. This is about 2003, I think. And this this is, yeah, you know, I've done a few Def Chants. You, you can hear this is me totally in the digital domain now. And Double Face were an artist. They didn't do many releases, but what they did, those records are really highly revered in hardcore techno circles. There's an EP they did on Laurent Ho's Epitaph label. Fucking amazing. So they were actually friend of like my, my long-term brother from another mother, Manu Lamelin, who's like, you know, one of France's definitely biggest hardcore DJ, techno DJ also. But he was really friendly with the guys from Double Face and the Double Face is two guys, Paul Louis, and he has a cousin whose name I still don't fucking know. But also Paul Louis was doing parties as Impulsives and me and Hellfish went there, played a couple of gigs for him. I did a solo gig for him, but with Impulsives, they, they also had a company. They were doing like CD compilations. I think the company was called Model. And I did a CD compilation called Thunder from the Southwest which, yeah, hardcore aficionados are going to know that compilation as well because that was me in full underground French mode. But after that, you know, they said, oh man, you know, we did everything. How you want to remix a track from Double Face? I was like, fuck, go on then. And they've done this album. And so he sent me stems from a track from the album that I'd never even heard. It was like, I really like the content, but I can do something with that. Go and listen to it away from me talking all over it, because I, I annoy myself on my own radio show by talking all over the music. Shut up, Luke, play the hardcore, blah, blah, blah. But in this tune, this is absolutely perfect marriage of, like, sci-fi sensibilities with thrashing fucking breakbeats and a kick drum that is, like, it's almost subsonic. So it's, like, high-tech hardcore with, like, almost breakcore sensibilities, but it's definitely hardcore. So, again, that's, like, that's just, like, me describing what I did when I first started, isn't it? But now I'm making the music of it. That, I like funk and I like rhythm, you know, like a straight kick drum doesn't it doesn't really get me going too much. But once you've got brakes flying around there, you've got this different rhythm thing going on and I can lose myself for minutes in that shit, you know? So yeah, one of them tunes, it just wrote itself, man, literally. Confirm signals then, let's talk about that. I mean, I assume 
you must be getting an absolutely flooded inbox of people sending you stuff. It's great and I love it and that's what it's for. Even as a DJ, I always played like wild card tunes, like yeah. the biggest supporter of the underdog. You know why? Why? Because I was the fucking underdog, you know? Finally, I'll find my people that I can make connection with those lunatics that I didn't think exist. Now I definitely know they exist. Now they all know they're on their fucking supporting their cause. I'm the DJ, I'm an advocate for this music. If it's good, I'll fucking shout about it, you know? I won't shout about rubbish. If it's rubbish, music all around, I'll play old music, fuck that. <laughs> but no, Confirmed Signals is play on words from an old track of mine, Signal Confirmed. And Signal Confirmed is literally about sending the signal in the hope that someone receives and understands what you're saying. Yeah. Well now the fucking signal has been confirmed, isn't it? So, Confirmed Signals, I'm just playing a fucking stream of them. So, it's, it's a huge play on words, but in a year and a half of doing it, I never thought I'd become a radio DJ. That's totally fucking alien territory to me, but it works and people love it. And it's been a support system through Corona. You know, there's been no gigs and yeah. I've had two gigs a month. That's fucking crazy. And with music coming from far reaches, people from fucking North Africa sending me tunes for fuck's sake. What the fuck is that, dude? This is now infected. It's global, man. And this show proved it, you know, without even like even selling out at any, any point at all, you know, rough 110 BPM stuff and really rough 300 BPM stuff. And I've got no qualms of anything in between, man. Completely nothing phases me anymore after a, after a year and a half of this. Believe me, man, it's crazy, dude. When people are telling you stuff, what's the quickest way to get to you in terms of what, Gmail or something like that? Gmail links are always the best. LucasProducer at, at gmail.com. Of course, I get messages via Instagram and SoundCloud and Facebook. But when you're trying to keep a monitor on all of them and do what I do, it's hard to constantly keep tabs. So, yeah, to my email is always best. But, you know... Oh, I don't know. I've sent, I've sent you a couple of emails, Luke, and it wasn't until I got you on Facebook that I actually got to talk to you. So, I don't know. <laughs> it must have gone in my spam fucking spam folder's got a lot to answer for, man. Fucking hell, dude. <laughs> But yeah, lucasproducer at gmail.com always, and I always listen to everything. And you know, you, you know if I like you because I'll be playing you. Simple as that. <laughs> it's just, that's how I work, dude. But I am all ears. You know, I'm 48 years old now, and you know, I'm, I'm an old motherfucker. My grades are starting to come through. I fucking hate that. I might still have the spirit of an 18 year old, but I'm not 18 years old. But you know, I am here to support the next generation and the generation after that because that's what old fuckers like me do, definitely. Are you 48? I'm 48 years young, man. Fucking get your head around that, eh? Mental. Hey, when's your birthday then? 16th of December. This year you'll be 49. That's right. It's fucked up, isn't it? I'm 48 myself. My birthday's in January, so you're two months older than me. Right, okay, timelines, man. Yeah, tiny bit ahead of you, innit? Yeah, yeah. It's like me and Greg Dolphin, actually. We're always arguing about who's the oldest. I swear it's him. It's, I can't even remember the last time he did admit to his birthday, so fuck that. <laughs> Next time I'm listening to your tape with producer playing Universe 1992, I can go, well, the reason the producer got that set was obviously he was older than me. That's right. You've got a fucking right there, mate. Bang the rights. Fuck.
Alright, so big name of the game, Lenny D. Yeah, I think actually, if I wind it back, you know, Lenny's been with me forever. Because 1986, Shark One featuring the Knights of the Turntable, what's the track called? I can't remember the track, but the scratching on that record is one of my favourite old school hip hop tunes ever. Lenny done the scratching on that. That record is actually produced by his old producer, Tommy Musto, as well. So, you know, and then four years on from that, 1989, you know, the first house records I ever got was like Fallout the morning after. Lenny D, Four Floor Records. I was like, okay, I'm still in the same fucking ballpark, man. Great. And and then then you like wind on a bit, and then we get to '92, and Lenny D's doing like hardcore remixes on fucking Rising High records and stuff. It's the same with fucking Fierce Ruling Diva as well, actually. You know, like fucking the earliest like European records I bought were from them. So my heroes for like most of my life, half of them have fucking followed me in the hardcore, man. I mean, Omar Santana as well, one of the biggest old school like freestyle editors in the uh, late '80s. Man, he sets up the H2O label, but yeah, I digress. Lenny D, he, he's he's been a guiding light forever. I was into his house music before he went hardcore, all his early major problem stuff, going YouTube it. The guy's a fucking legend. But then, just after my universe, mind, body, and soul, the following party was universe's big love. Now, actually, if you go on the internet, for, for me personally, I think that set for me is better than the previous mind, body, and soul because it's well more Euro and. I was playing Ball Terror on Rotterdam Records in Nine Deck. We are definitely playing Gabba at this point. But I played for half an hour extra than I should have because the Prodigy went missing, okay? They were meant to be playing after me. They went missing. They still didn't turn up. So what happens? Lenny D comes on the turntable. So there's like tiny Lenny D comes. The first time I ever met him, he was like, fucking Stundy was even there in front of me. And within 10 minutes, his opening was just like the noise from Escalinium United. I, got, I was stunned. I was like stunned, stuck to the floor, just watching him with my mouth open like a fucking goldfish. I must have spent the first half an hour of his set like that, just watching him. It was like, okay, this is how you play hardcore techno, man. Now I'm getting schooled again, big time, and this time from the main fucking dude, you know, like Lenny. When Lenny played the way he did back then, it was something else. It might have been a bit messy, but he played tunes, man. Yeah, Lenny D, that whole North America thing, something I've never got my head around. I mean, you can see how, like, Belgium stuff or Dutch stuff comes over to the UK, we're all in Europe together. I never understood how the Americans got into hardcore. There was no evolution that I could see. Lenny's introduction is really from production, definitely, because, like I said, you know, the early New Groove things, and then he, Lenny did uh, remixes for Spectrum's Brazil on R&S Records. That was him and Eric Kupper. Then after that, he would have done... I think he did a Lenny DEP like solo on RNS, but wasn't actually on RNS Records. It's one of their subsidiaries. So like Lenny was definitely in the network. And then as a touring DJ, you know, Lenny was DJing more than actually producing on European labels. But you know, Lenny then went, came to Europe, played at a Mayday, smashed that up, then ended up staying in Frankfurt for three years with Mark Cardapane. So then he's absolutely in the main context of hardcore techno, and just from there, kind of fan backwards. So like for you know for about a year, Lenny's based in. Germany and then just fucking played everywhere and destroyed the world and as you know industrial strength was pretty much born off of that staying with Mark for a year licensing a track from Mark which you know Mark Ricardo Payne's We Have Arrived which is industrial strength number one so then you know industrial strength is a US label but first release from a European established artist yeah dude it all tied together and after that was like the biggest European hardcore artist getting the rest from the US was easy and yeah you know most of the releases thereafter 
on industrial strength up until I think about number 20 was all US artists so they were there they just needed a fucking platform to scream from man and Lenny facilitated that completely yeah Lenny you know industrial strength as far as I'm concerned is the mothership you know uh, PCP was big for Germany but for me industrial strength had like a wider distribution and I knew about industrial strength before I knew about PCP and industrial strength was like the leading light for this is what hardcore techno is gonna do this is where we are going where we're like right I subscribe let's go Lenny was all that totally so then that all came then through the, the Belgians and the techno scene and that makes that makes that connect in my head now. definitely absolutely absolutely yeah obviously yeah, industrial strength still going today and um, still going at it so yeah long may it last for sure. I mean, we can't miss out the fact that, you know, Lenny, yeah, after doing PCP then, you know, Lenny would have worked with um, Paul L. Stuck at Rotterdam Records and they did a couple of e- they did a couple of EPs together and then Lenny, Lenny did a couple of remixes. Yeah, Lenny was right in the middle of it, man. And then, then I, you know, I had my first proper meetings with Lenny D, finally, to be able to hug each other at, at the Resurrections in Scotland. You know, our base, you know, that night I also met Paul L. Stuck and, you know, Patrick, DJ Roughneck and everyone. It was like, these are my fucking people. We are all together. That this is it. I'm now fucking. Oh, am I in there? I don't, am I one of them yet? I don't know. They're all bigger than me, man. Fuck that. But I'm working on it. Yeah. Okay. Thirty years later, I, f- I think I'm in there, man. But yeah, dude, it was. It was remarkable to see that the things that I wanted finally it was channeling, and then all of the people were in the same place. It was like, yeah, this is. This is where we go, man. This is how I'm doing. It's, it's been done for me, mate. Yeah. Yeah, Lenny is such a guiding light and industrial strength. Man, in my fucking studio, I think I've got more industrial strength records in my record collection than any other label. So, yeah, he put out some tunes as well, dude. So, yeah, dude really meant it. I'm half scared of asking you this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway, Luke. The DJ producer, like, what the hell? Like, where's that name coming from? Like, that's got to be... I mean, obviously you weren't thinking of, like, Google and how easy it is to search for you in Google, but, like... Mate, back then there was no fucking Google. There was no fucking internet. I'm going to tell you one time, like, I've said this in other interviews, but you've got quite a wide listener base. Uh, categorically, this is like the last time I'm going to say this. In 1990, you know, I was a bedroom DJ. You know, I was a scratch DJ in my bedroom. I referred to myself as DJ Quick Cut because I was quick and I could cut, but that didn't stand in the rave. And we didn't win some free party and I played and we came home. It was an after hour session. I was mixing in my bedroom with a couple of mates. We were all still wasted. And my mate, just out of the blue, he said, dude, you need to be called the producer. And we were all like, what, man? He was like, dude, because you're the only one who produces the goods, dude. That was it. The DJ producer was born right there. So that was that name was given to me just from the actions that I did. I didn't know anything about production at that point. I never even, you know, for years, I even said that DJs who made records was a fucking cliche. I said that as I, who's got an ego big enough to want to fucking make a record? You're you're gonna be a DJ, you'd be a fucking DJ. You know, I still had hardcore b-boy mentality at that time. It was like, none of that, none of that Aaron Grace's bullshit. It's like, if you're gonna DJ, you fucking DJ, man. Don't be Aaron Grace in yourself. But then weirdly by accident, you know, I did end up being a producer. So, you know, I was a DJ way longer than I was a producer, but I've been producing now since 1994 and that's 26 years. So at the end, I am the DJ producer. What the fuck is that, man? I don't even know the fucking mystical shit, mate, but I'll run with it. (laughs) I'm not just any old DJ producer, but the DJ producer. Well, yeah, because initially, I'll tell you why that occurred as well, and that's weird, because in the first universe, is on the flyer, I am the producer, 
right? I was on, I was, I was, and I, I, after he said, you should be called the producer, so that was it. So for a couple of flyers, I was on there as, as the producer. Yeah, probably around about Big Love. But this dude rung me out of nowhere, don't even remember his name, you can find him on Discogs, but this guy rung me up saying, you need to stop using that name. I'm, I'm registered with the Performing Rights Society. I recorded one EP as the producer, so I request you drop that name. That's the phone call I got. I was like, all right then, mate, perfect. I'm the DJ producer, you be the producer. See you later, put the phone down. Now, go on Discogs, and, and if you search the DJ producer, all you're gonna fucking find is me, my... So I put that motherfucker to bed as well. That was my other mission. Like, delete that prick and fucking make it known who's gonna boss this out. Who fucking won that war? I know who won that fucking war. So yeah, that's the other thing. The name was given to me in a time when yeah. I didn't even know what a fucking mixing desk looked like, yeah. you know? But yeah, I've, I've literally grown into my name, man. Crazy. So look, tell me then, producing is something I'm interested in as well. Like, when you're putting tunes together, are you doing your own mastering or is someone doing mastering for it? That hardcore sound, like, not just you, but anyone that's doing that, it's like a solid block of noise that comes up as plus 10 decibels, Mike. Well, zero dB, everything. Fuck dynamics, what do you need them for? This is hardcore, man. <laughs> that's an awful thing to say, listen to me. No, we do absolutely everything. Everything. You know, I went through a phase when I was living in a place that wasn't acoustically perfect and I did have a bit of help, but other than that, everything we've ever done, completely DIY, no help, perhaps to send a master off when they were doing vinyl masters and they'll quickly top and tail it at, at their end so that we don't break the cutting head, but other than that, everything we do is completely fucking self-made. You know, I learned a few tricks from a few producers, you know, sort of, yeah, just get it as loud as humanly possible in the kick drum area, and if nothing else works with that going, it won't fucking work, mate. So that makes you learn engineering real quickly, let me tell you. So, hardcore is a boisterous thing. Hardcore was created by forcing a kick drum right into the fucking red. That's the one thing they tell you you should never do. All we're doing is adding few extra harmonics. A few, he says, fucking hell. <laughs> yeah, it's like nuclear music, isn't it? You know, but it is what it is, and that's it's, it has its sound from literally doing those things within the engineering process. That's how it has mutated into what it is today, for sure, man. We were always DIY, no one could ever help us do this, because it goes against everything you're ever taught completely. So when you're making something then, straight away you're working at full strength, there's no headroom. Kick drum first, man, always. Just full fuck you kick drums. Kick drum first, break the speakers, press follows. If you like doing it sensibly, you'll use compressors and limiters to get it to that point where you know there could be no more got, but once you've got that and it's rendered as a solid lump and can't be moved, then it can be literally played with like Lego, man. <laughs> It's, no, you know, it's, it sounds mental, but you know, the kick drum is the most prominent part in the program. You know, everything needs to be able to wrap around it, or at least be, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, being in key really helps because then the waves are working in the same way. If you've got two things slightly out of key, that's when you're going to get blurring and issues and nightmares. But you know, if you know things are like, you know, pretty much tuned at the point where they need to be, you can force it absolutely full fuck, and it will still work. I heard that from people saying you need to literally zoom in on the waveform and see that the peaks and the troughs are all matching up and there's no conflicts as you say harmonics and the rest of it yeah it, it really does it does help it ends up with a cleaner presentation at the end of it but yeah you know loud is always going to be fucking loud it's just knowing how to work within that framework to a degree you know 
so we just talked all the way through Uncertain Sound. That's right. I remastered it last year, but that gig, I, I showed you that video from the um, 3.0 gig that I did in the Heineken Music Hall back in 2012. Well, that, that tune was actually written as the kind of, I hate the word, anthem. But it was, you know, they literally, like you see the video, they'd literally written like a 45 minute piece of outrageous head fuck video with everything like sequenced almost on beat to a degree but there's a point where I dropped that tune they they had a certain display and everything worked you know time coded and it, it was fucking incredible I only got to sort on the video afterwards because I was playing on the stage with it going on behind me so I didn't even know it was happening at the time but you go back and look at that video with that track playing it was like oh I'm having a moment I did a thing mum <laughs> you know and it, yeah and it, it sounded like like the feature and I wanted it to so like core, the, the idea from Q Dance was core 3.0 should be really futuristic so design something that sounds like the future so I tried to and some people consider that I did and that's why I included it because it it fucked up a few heads man definitely And then going to this one, Rich Search and Development from 1997. I was kind of talking about the span of your career as a musician and making tunes and how you're pretty much on the same sort of vibe throughout the, all the music you're making, right? And, and the fact that it's all very producer. I, I, so I, I guess what I'm trying to get to is it's a hardcore, it's a hardcore industrial techno sound rather than a GABA sound, I guess what I'm saying. For sure, you know, even my friend, like Frank ID, he's, he got it to the point, he says, you know, sometimes, Luke, I don't I don't know how to explain your music as just fucking Luke music, because sometimes no one makes fucking music like you. Yeah, that's even hard for me to say, because that sounds like such an outlandish, big-headed thing to say, but I, I hate all that, and I hate to be, like, be put down as being that, but there's been moments where I've made tunes, and even I was like, fucking hell, man, that really... That strides between two things like I've never done, but you know, this track, Research and Development, you know, it is, yeah, 1997, it's 200 BPM, but you know, half of it does sound like, yeah, it sounds like I've been listening to too much like fucking Metalheads music, Source Direct, No U-Turn, all of that, but taking that kind of dark UK breakbeat imprint and morphing it into something that come from a more hardcore perspective. I knew there was a marriage there, you know? I mean, it's funny, the marriage, you can say six years later, ended up being called Crossbreed. I'm not a creator of anything, but the things that I did with this music legitimized the way that music would be created later. I, that much I am sure, and you know, that's how I wanted it to be. I want, I want there to be catalysts that make people think fucking, okay, let's stop doing that like that. Let's try and do something fucking different instead. You know, it's, yeah, research and development is, even, even I had the title even before I did the track, you know, and then when I did the track, it was like, what the fuck is this, man? This is some space shit you got going on. You know, 12-bit samplers, kind of shittily produced, you know, it's not my best production, but, I think sometimes the ideas just precede a production, don't they? And this track I am immensely proud of because it did straddle two worlds that I wanted connecting. Drum and bass could be inaugurated into like vicious hardcore techno and then coexist and be a thing, man. And in some way that this was the beginning of that, definitely. Designed to scatter a line of 
suckers who claim I do crime. They on my time, dig it. Oh yeah, we've added fucking public enemy vocals as well. You can't not have public enemy vocals in hardcore techno, can you, man? I mean, come on. <laughs> it's a given, isn't it? You've got to do it. <laughs> but yeah. Beeps, I've always said it, whenever you're talking tunes, one of the things I'll always say is I love beeps. Beeps was once described to me as just brainless music, you know, and the fact that you can just listen to it, tune into the beeps, and just forget about everything else, right? Mate, breaks, bleeps, and bass lines, man. That was an early premise. That's, yeah, those key constitute parts to what we enjoy listening to, definitely. Something very cerebral about a bleep going off in your head, isn't there? Definitely, definitely. Designed to scatter a line of suckers who claim I do crime. They are my time, dig it. And in this bit now we're getting into a lot more what I would call like hardcore techno. This is very much your sound, right? No, this is it. This is proving that the metamorphosis could be like that gentle that you didn't even feel it. You know, one minute you're like vibing on some half-step drum and bass vibe with these two-step breaks. They are my time, dig it. There you go. They're on my time, dig it. Kick drum. And like, even that kick drum, that's one of the first kick drums I actually sound designed myself. And that's successful. I used that kick drum about in about six other Def Chant records. So apologies for that. But when you're on a good thing, <laughs> yeah, milk it for a minute because it was definitely mine and no one else's. It was like, yeah, we got a fucking rotative thing whirring away in, man. There's, yeah, that now there, that's the feel of the Technodrome in Elskoa. Absolutely, you know? Who are you managed by these days? Who's booking you for gigs? Prospect in Holland. I joined with them just before the beginning of Pandemia, which you know, all of us really cry a lot about, but hey, you can't control shit, can you? But here in the UK, yeah, for the past, I don't know how many years, um, Al Twisted uh, and the Dark Side crew, yeah, Twisted Twisted Artists up in Scotland, he takes care of all my UK and uh, Ireland stuff, so it's all taken care of, man. Designed to scatter a line of suckers who claim I do crime, they are my time digging. <laughs> Yeah, I was looking over your resident advisor gigs and... Uh, yeah, I've never looked at that, mate. I've never seen that in my fucking life, mate. Where do you dig that shit up from? Just go to residentadvisor.co, type in the DJ producer, or just producer. If you, type, if you type in producer, you might get that other guy that made that one EP. But I think you'd come up first. Yeah, you might do. No, I could probably come up in the, uh, the sewage department, yeah? Right at the bottom, fuck. It's all the gigs on there are all European gigs. And, and one of the gigs on there, which I knew about already, I didn't know to go to resident advisor to see it, was when you played in Ireland. And I think that always shocks me. It's like, oh yeah, I remember when you came to Ireland, I saw you, it's a fantastic gig. Uh, we haven't got a great hardcore scene over here. So when my, when my mate Ben booked you there for pressure, I was like, oh man, producer, that's a heavy name to be bringing to Ireland. Like, but yeah, the room was absolutely packed out, stonking, and that really gave me the idea to, to bring people over as well. But anyway, I'm on a tangent. 2016, fuck it, that was five years ago, this, this sort of month. Unbelievable. I remember it well, man. It was fucking, in, it was bonkers, mate. It was proper insane. I was a little bit flustered when I arrived due to like plane stress and I walked into fucking chaos, mate. It was bedlam. <laughs> I live for bedlam, mate. I'm not moaning about bedlam, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, dude, amazing, amazing. 
Jeff, five years ago, crazy. But uh, yeah, you, you drew a huge crowd over here, which fantastic to see. We're not just listening to shitty fucking side trance and drum and bass all the time. That's well, great, isn't it? The underground does still exist, man. I'm glad they're, I'm, I'm glad they're still brave, dude. So you're on Resident Advisor now, having a quick look. It says predominantly France. It says you predominantly play in France, apparently. Did do, but I haven't predominantly played anywhere for a fucking year and a half, mate. Pre- predominantly played in my bedroom for the last year and a half, mate. It's been fucking amazing. <laughs> I'd say my bedroom, fucking hell. Could be anywhere, couldn't it? Anywhere that isn't a gig, mate. Fuck me. <laughs> I was looking for the interesting places, though. That's what I was actually trying to dig out, because I'm sure you must have played America, Pan, Asia, Australia, right? I would have thought. Asia is the one place that I've never played, man. Everywhere else, yeah, definitely. But Asia, yeah, I played in Japan, yeah, done Osaka, done Tokyo, but actual, nothing Indian, so... Oh, God, no, no, I wouldn't have thought China and India would be well into hardcore. Not really. So, you know, all the bases that I got covered so far are covered, and, you know, now that we're sort of slowly coming out of pandemic, you know, for, like, the last... Yeah, seven, eight years, definitely. Holland Holland and Belgium were definite hotspots, but, you know, with the um, movement of, like, uh, agencies, they definitely, because Holland isn't actually getting, going as quickly as other places, the agencies are already looking at, like, gigs further afield, like France seems to be kicking off in some respects now. So, yeah, just the um, sensors are on full to see who's active and where we're going next, dude, definitely. Yeah, I think it's been, uh, obviously, 18 months has it's been ridiculous. But I think what's going to happen, you know, when people listen back to recordings like this a year from now, I don't think anyone's going to give a shit about the pandemic. I think everyone's just going to be moved on, like, you know? Exactly. That's, what we, that's all we can hope for, and it? We've spent so much time, like, mulling it over, man. The sooner we can get back into the rave and forget the fucking better, I think, really. Kick drum kamikaze, stupid motherfucker. What what an anthem that is. For a ridiculous, retarded, hardcore techno anthem, for all the tracks that I've done on Death Chant, this ridiculous 220 BPM romper stomper really defines the pure ridiculous anger that can be achieved when stealing samples off of people you shouldn't steal from and just going balls out. Break everything hardcore, man. And it's done in the era of like when Bloody Fist were really strong and it was just swearing and samples of needles sliding around and just fucking chaos. I'm like, yeah, I want to do one of those as well. And did this. And yeah, as soon as that was released, uh, you know, some some tracks you just lose ownership of and people just fucking take them as their own. And a lot of people really love this tune, man. So that's theirs and not mine, man. Absolutely. Watch me shoot this have you ever got into trouble over that sampling? Oh yeah, yeah. I've got in trouble with two of my main heroes for sampling, which is fucking retarded because they sampled. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to name names. They both know who they fucking are. But it's totally ridiculous. I mean, it's funny because we we had an, an incident with forgotten moments that we did play earlier, where um, Hellfish put out a white label. We put out a couple of white labels called Stroyd. You know, we'll admit to it now because we can all laugh about it now. But it wasn't very funny back then. But yeah, the Stroyd one and twos. You know, I do a mega mix and then Hellfish had just ruined something. So with the first one I did a crazy mega mix where I literally sampled fucking everyone, everyone in hardcore, there was not anyone left untouched. So don't come at me like, oh you sampled me, I was like, yeah I fucking sampled everyone else as well, don't worry about it. But on the flip side, basically Hellfish stole the whole of Forgotten Moments and stuck a Randy MC track on the top of it. (laughs) 
<laughs> and yeah, 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 ha ha ha, everyone thought it was me. And then Lenny D ringing my house and me having the coldest fucking phone conversation with Lenny D of my whole fucking life. We can laugh about it now, but it really wasn't fucking funny then. But even to this day, even when I was putting the, like, you know, because I put the feelers out about this show, you know, I don't think the show is really about what I think about, like, the tunes that I've ever played, but there's so many tunes that are so important to other people, I'd sort of let them have half the choices. This track had been called out so many times, but yeah, I just think it's so many tracks that have been played out and yeah sampled and got me in trouble sometimes you just gotta go alright put my hands up this is what we do but hey let's face it most other fucking artists in hardcore have as well so none of us are fucking angels are we you know I went through that post I think the most commented track was the Die Witness one about 10 or 12 people put Die Witness on there it's yeah. completely out of my hand. Yeah, like I said, it's almost embarrassing playing with that. But no, it was so shocking when you heard that tune back in the day because it didn't sound like anything else. We got so used to like piano anthems and break beats and Prodigy and SL2. When you heard a kick drum and fucking you go, what the fuck? What is that, dude? Like, you know, the funniest thing about that tune, this is even fucking funnier. You know, my dad, God rest his soul, he, he was really into music. He was a big taper of John Peel. And you know, when John Peel got to, you know, sort of the beginning of the 90s, but the beginning of the 90s, Pete Tong was really big on the radio, and my father, he used to record all the fucking Pete Tong shows, and there was a couple of moments, I'd woken up on a Saturday morning, come downstairs, and my dad was really excited, going, Luke, you need to hear this, what I fucking recorded off the radio last night, you know? Die Witness, Observing the Earth was one of those tunes, man. I, I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing, I was like, Dad, where the, where the fuck do you get this? And he was like, yeah, Pete Tong, I was like... Oh my god. So I, I don't think anyone really even heard that show, but yeah, my friend Chris again, he he actually had a copy of this record. I was like, dude, you give me that fucking record. So so a track that my father played to me that I then borrowed from a friend, I played at a rave that then made me. So I didn't even buy the record, man. Like, what the dude, this gets weirder and weirder, doesn't it? You're the first to hear any of that, mate. So there you go. So your dad's the one that got you into Gabba then, is what you're saying? My dad's the one that got me in, no, you're honest mate, my dad's the one that got me into everything, you know, even when I was first buying like uh, early hip hop stuff, I, I bought like my copy of Kraftwerk's Tour de France, my dad was with me, you know, he was ex- as excited to get it as I was because he'd already bought two Kraftwerk fucking yeah. uh, LPs, but Kraftwerk's Tour de France actually appeared in the film Breakdance which I was besotted with at the time. So instantly, like me and my dad had a full on connection about music. You know, your parents are meant to hate your music. My old man was right up for it. That, that really helps as a kid, you know, if your fucking parents are on side and he's then actively listening as well. I'm like, oh my, this is crazy, this is, really. But yeah, my dad was always like that. So that was never weird for me, you know, it just never was. On your bio there on Discogs, it says you used to work in a record store bass bomb in Bath. I wondered if that was where you sourced a lot of stuff as well in the early days, like when we went to Universal stuff. Absolutely. That, I mean, that correlated right with that time as well. I think I started working at the record shop. That would have been, yeah, about November, December of 92. And I worked there right to the beginning of 94. So, like, literally, end of 92. So, I had it all of 93 and beginning of 94. And that was, I was dealing with, like, Mo's Music Machine and Great Asset. And we were just getting hot to trot. You know, they were getting, like, three and four copies of, like, you know, Adam and Eve records and, like, Labworks records from Germany. But, you know, they knew I was one of them ones that was desperate for it so I'd, I'd ring on day of delivery I was like you got them German things it's like two copies please <laughs> 
two copies of everything, two copies of everything, two copies. I'd have, I'd have one of everything, you know. So I was like, I was really vicious in, you know, working at a record shop. But I was like, me first. Fuck the shop, me first. <laughs> I'm not sure what my boss felt about that, but that was absolutely how it went, man. Fucking hell. But yeah, again, that then taught me loads more about, you know, how the um, record shop thing worked, how how the actual distributors worked, where they got their stuff, you know, learning new labels from them and where they were getting their stuff. It, it really opened up another realm to me. So then by the time I got to 1994, yeah, met Gordon Nathman to release my record and playing in uh, Knowledge in London. When I went to Knowledge in London, that first night I went there was also the first night that I met Mr. Simon Underground, who at that time was in the, the corner of the club on a tiny little round table with one crate of records on the table and a little sticker stuck on the front of the crate said Underground Music. That was Simon at the beginning of his Underground Music Empire with just 40 records in a store. And straight away, I was like, where'd you get these tunes from? He was like, oh, that was it, we bonded right then. I met Simon in 94. I was talking to him three days ago. Like, we have been buddies ever since because it was like he knew I could play the records that he got and I knew he had the records I wanted. So we just instantly just all over each other straight away, which was amazing. So again, connections, just finding those people who have that interest that you have back then was our internet because we had no internet. You had to be out there and get in amongst it, you know, totally. Did you ever go on a plane, go to Holland, anything like that? You know, that's, that's the one thing I probably do regret a little bit was, you know, never getting to one of those early Hellraisers or Thunderdomes. You know, I was aware they were going on. I was thinking about buying records. Go, go to Amsterdam, go to Rotterdam, buy records. For me, I was pretty adept at, I would get on a train and go to Manchester just to go to Eastern Bloc for the day, or I would get on a train from Bath and, and go to London real early to do like all the Carnaby Street stores and go to Chockey's and I'd go everywhere around Black Market. I, I would, if I wasn't DJing at that time when I wasn't in the studio, I was fucking hounding record shops like a maniac, mate, seriously. I was like a bloodhound. I'd have route maps to go around London for the most efficient way to get the most record shops in the amount of time. I'm not even joking, mate. Like. Fucking hardcore, man. You know, so you, back then, to be what you considered the best, you fucking put the groundwork in. And because I don't even drive, mate. You know, I still don't. That's retarded, isn't it? Do you, do you not? No, not at all, mate. Never have. Fuck, how do you get to gigs then? Like public transport? Don't ask, mate. Fucking chauffeurs, mate. Of course, yeah, your level. Of course, yeah, chauffeurs all the way, yeah. Of course, mate. Come on, man. <laughs> you got to read the bonuses somewhere, ain't you? <laughs> But yeah, there was a lot of legwork involved, but I did it because I love it. You know, I actually look at myself when I sort of step outside of myself. Dude, if I wasn't at the DJ, I'd still be doing that anyway, because I was a record collector. Of course. I collect the records. It's in your blood. Being a record collector, that's what caused all this, because I had the records to play. But if, even if I wasn't the DJ, I'd still have this mega bad habit that my wife fucking wished I didn't have. <laughs> you know? Yeah, dude, it all, it all, rolled, all rolled around, but um, yeah, I seem to have made pretty, pretty good out of what I've fucking achieved, man, definitely. Car or no car, mate.
I'll bring it back as well to what you were saying about your dad recording John Peel. Uh, I'm sure you've obviously listened to a lot of John Peel. I would have listened to John Peel too. I guess being of a similar age. Again, John Peel was such a demon for like digging and digging and finding everything from every corner of the world that he could possibly find and sharing it with the world. And what that really taught me, probably you too, is that passion is a normal, natural thing actually to, to go and do that great digging and, and get, get people listening to this fucking amazing music, right? Even once my dad had made me realise that, you know, within every John Peel show, he would definitely play two imported US hip-hop cuts per night. From about 1986 onwards, that ruined the rest of my school life because every night I'd have my stereo behind my pillow with my arm crooked with my finger on the pause button, just waiting for two kick drums of a DMX drum machine. I was like, that's a hip-hop track record. I got, I still got like about seven or eight cassettes just full of tracks I recorded off of John Peel, preceding what my dad did, you know? So, yeah, that man is responsible for a lot and, yeah, showed, showed me that yeah there's so much to dig through it's never done <laughs> it's never yeah. done never and then see he's got a stage there glastonbury named after him I and mean, what a legacy right hey look i never talked about this track ride of our lives i'm a terrible for talking all over it but these are long little tracks too so you know oh it just comes to an end oh perfect time sorry mate it doesn't matter everything we talk about this whole thing has been like the ride of my life there you go bill hicks samples it's just a ride you know isn't it the world is like a ride in an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. And the ride goes up and down and round and round, it has thrills and chills, and it's very brightly colored, and it's very loud, and it's fun for a while. Some people have been on the ride for a long time, and they begin to question, is this real, or is this just a ride? And other people have remembered, and they come back to us, and they say, hey, don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride. But we always kill those good guys who try and tell us that. You ever notice that? And let the demons run amok? But it doesn't matter because it's just a ride. Sweet spots now, party animals. Oh man, I love everything on Milk. It's like Milk and Roughneck for me, buy it on site. Don't even listen, even listen to it. It's funny, man, because uh, I think for all the records that I actually got rid of, and I've got rid of a few because I had so many, but I kept all my Mokums, all my Roughnecks, and all my industrial strengths. That just said something, doesn't it? They, 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 they're like the templates of how hardcore should be done, really. These kicks, though, it just gives me such a fucking boner. I chose this track because a few of my friends, a couple who definitely spring to mind, are besotted with this track because of me. Well, Mokum is like one of them labels that was so fucking consistent. You, you saw the red sleeve, you'd buy the record, so just that was it. Listen to that kick drum. What I love about this sort of stuff is when they actually do a key change in the kick drum. This is just done there, like, I love that. Yeah, it was something that it was quite a brave thing to do from a, a, an engineer's point of view because, you know, the whole bass octave shifts and that means there's a lot of uh, possibility for the mix fucking up. But uh, back in the day, we didn't know any of that and just went for it. My only I can do it on Def Chan is basically this kick drum stolen and me playing fucking octaves with it, like fully, to the point where Flaman and Abraxas both know and have both given me the thumbs up because I played in my version, they were like, fucking hell, man, go for it. So, 
not everyone knows every piece of music so you know all of these artists that we've sampled I'd say you know a fifth of them know that we even sampled them to be fair you know artists are such egomaniacs they only listen to their own stuff you know they don't listen to anyone else's stuff so so I brought it to their attention that what I'd done to their track they were like fucking okay no, nothing left to say you did good nice one kid and I was like yeah we did but yeah without EHBO by the party animals who are Fierce Ruling Diva, who are two of my other biggest heroes, yeah, like tracks like my It Can Be Done But Only I Can Do It would not exist because they were basically built around this fucking track. So artists who never say, oh, I don't get influenced by anyone, you're a fucking liar. Because we all get influenced by somebody and some of us get influenced so hard we just basically end up robbing the shit. And yeah, hardcore do that to somebody, you know? I guess in other music fields that would be kind of frowned upon, but uh, in hardcore there seems to be some weird acceptance to a degree, so hey, fuck it. As long as you do something original with it, I think that's the important thing, man. Add your own funk to it. When you've done that, you get away with fucking murder, mate. Definitely. Where do you stand on I Wanna Be A Hippie? Yeah, I hate it. Do you? It's the one techno head record I don't own. You don't own it even? Wow. I'm not sure Michael Wells knows it, but he knows it now. But me and him are very good friends. And, you know, GTO for me, you know, for UK guy playing hardcore, they they were my, like, techno head was my biggest guiding light because she played Gabba. She reviewed Gabba in the DJ magazine. You know, I was the only fucking Gabba DJ I really knew at that time before I'd met Scorpio. So it was like, if GTO say it's fucking right, I know it's right. I don't need to listen to any of these junglists telling me I'm an idiot playing kick drums at fucking 190 BPM. I don't care for them, but I will be honest with you, when Techno Ed brought out that track, I didn't like it. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just going backstory for anyone who wouldn't necessarily know, but I mean, when that came out, I think it was 94, that actually made it into the UK charts. And I think that's the only Gabba track ever to make it in the UK charts. Well, I say Gabba, I use air quotes, obviously, for the sake of you being on here, but... Yeah, for sure, but it, but it was on Mocha, man, so it was a Gabba track, there's no denying it, dude, it, it, it was definitely a thing. Yeah, I did not subscribe. Jungle, you know, there's that MB Incredible tune, which is a controversial track for some junglists, that is just a bit, you know, commercialization of a genre. Exactly. But, you know, it's funny as well, though, you can look at it as, like, commercialization of a genre, or it's, like, a really nice, annoying fly in the anointment, letting the world know that you exist, even if they don't want to. I kind of like that. It's like, like, yeah, you might hate it, but look, we do exist. There's fuck all you can do about it. So I like that slant as well. But, yeah, um, there's definitely better tracks I could pick to play, for sure. The world is coming to an end, but we don't care. Because we're moon-tan nocturnal, bino-consuming animals drifting easy through friendly space, an analog trance, nothing can do this groove. We're controlling the vibe, manipulating the madness, sucking in the energy, our cosmic derivatives are telling us how to move, what to do, where to go, and then we know, then... DJ producer being very uh, artistic and musical here now with a tune Positive Outlook from 2015. Here he plays the piano concerto of Mozart in B major. Is it a B major? I don't even know what key it's in. I don't know, I'm talking out my ass, mate. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I should just shut up a minute and let the fucking intro talk, innit? Because if you let the intro talk, then you can do the vocal. This fucking tune. 
This fucking tune wrecks everyone. This version, when I made this, it did actually make me cry. I'm not even joking, it actually did. When I finally did that piano piece in all its former glory, I was a fucking mess, mate. I'm gonna shut up because I want the fucking spoken sample to be heard before we start blabbing away again, because it's quite poignant. And it's all my little boy's fault as well. I did it when he, I did the original Positive Outlook when he was born, and I did this version for my album when he was a little bit older. Shut up, Luke. Play the alcohol. Some people go to work, they work eight hours or however long they're gonna work and they make their money. They work for it, right? I'm not just sitting here playing, being like, oh, hope I do good. No, it's like, you have to be better than hundreds of people, thousands of people to be the best. Everyone at first looked at him like, you're not gonna make any money off this, dude. You, you've gotta be the creme de la creme. You know, the top of the top. Those are the people that get paid. And he would always just look at us and be like, yeah, so that's what I'm gonna be. Some of your tunes from eight minutes to six. Yeah, definitely, mate. My shit goes on way too long, doesn't it? It's just, it's mindless, mate. <laughs> I had gore shit on. He had 20 tracks and it was only 60 minutes. Mate. I needed to like do something that would help articulate our timeline. And I thought, looking at the tunes, however much you sort of randomised the order, I'd still have something to talk about that wouldn't get me too confused. So I think we've done all right so far, don't you? Yeah, yeah, pretty good, yeah. I mean, half of it's talking to you, half of it's talking to you, you know? For me, I can say, I'm gonna go back to, for me, the big fanboy bit was the whole you play in the universe. Uh, how'd you get going on that one? I mean, you've got a seriously long career, 30-odd years, still in the game, and uh, many more to come from. I also wonder, I mean, I'll ask you this as well, how do you keep fit physically and mentally? Like, you know, you look down the barrel of 50, what's the next 10 years going to look like to me? I have no idea, man. I'm still super active. I can fucking, I can beat my little kid in a race. I don't, I don't smoke tobacco at all. I'm a massive fucking advocate of cannabis. I don't give a fuck what anyone says about that. I've, I don't, I'm drunk alcohol in about 15 years properly. Just fuck that. Fuck chemicals. Be active. Have an active mind. Don't be fucking lazy. Don't put off tomorrow what you can do today. Walk as much as you can, I don't fucking drive. So like, well, I mean, Bath's a really small city, so I'm really lucky. So you can walk side to side of the city in like an hour and a bit, you know, it's small. So living here is, is really easy not to fucking drive anywhere. Plus when you do drive, it's a fucking nightmare and you wish you hadn't, so. <laughs> I, I don't really do lazy. I've always got something to do and I'm always doing it. And I don't have a to-do list because it's already done. You know, I'm, I'm like constant. And, I, and I've got a constant list of like studio jobs that I've got to do. And in between all of that that I just described to you, I've also got a wife that I have to relate to and a son that I have to play with. So doing all the normal things outside the abnormal things, 
all I really have time left to do is fucking smoke weed before I go to bed and sleep. There you go, mate. That's my fucking day, day to day. And yeah, you know, actually being a professional DJ, really, you know, Corona, if anything, that's the first break I've had. Like, year and a half breaks, first break I've had in 28 years, man. Like, like, really? It's not rock and roll, but fuck me, the rave life can totally bring on a rock and roll lifestyle. And if you do too much of it, it will fucking ruin you. So my advice is, don't. Simple. It's really easy, man. It's really easy. Obviously, when you're young, dumb and full of cum, I was fucking doing absolutely everything by the worst drugs known to man. I was fucking full of it. You know, the whole night is just like, it's not a blur because I can remember everything, but I'm lucky I can. <laughs> you know? But then, you know, you sort of get older. As you get older, you just naturally just be a bit more sensible. And yeah, as I grow into production, doing the jobs that I've assigned myself to do become more important than any of the fucking recreationals. Do you know what I mean? So it falls into place and... I've never been one for like, oh, I don't miss deadlines. I've never given myself too much work that I can't do to the point where I've almost given myself a nervous breakdown. I know what I'm capable of and I've now got to the point where I'm really fucking good at saying no. And that's the fucking learning the art of that as well. I know we're all fucking, you know, you, everyone wants adoration and, and to be included and, you know, to say yes to everything can be good for a while, but watch that, <laughs> you know, because that can fuck you up as well. So, yeah, just a few little pointers from a fucking old motherfucker. Keep all that lot in, lot in check and you'll be as buoyant as I am. I, I love, fully love your attitude and I love how, I forget what day of the week it was. Was it Monday? Was it Tuesday? I'm like, hey, Luke, how you doing? Do you want to do talking tunes? Yeah, here's the tunes. Oh, okay. When do you want to talk? Friday. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like, wow. I don't think I've ever, ever met anybody that's like, here's the tunes. Let's go. I can see what I've got to do and when I've got to do it. And like I say, if we'd have done it next week, we'd have waited another week because during radio week, I've got to be organised with the radio and production is starting to kick in, so I'm having to balance those two things. Easier now because my kid finally goes back to school next week after six weeks of summer holiday. So yeah, production is about to seriously kick in. So I was like, no, let's do this now because this is a great time to fucking do this. Just preceding all my serious work, we have like a window of opportunity and I'm all up for grabbing windows of opportunity, mate, seriously. So this tune positive out did you say you made this when you... Yeah, when my son was born in the year 2009, the original positive outlook was the first track that I'd done since his birth. And it was like the biggest spine tingling music writing session of my life because it honestly that like the riff and the melody it came out of the ether like it was I was doing a thing you know and I was trying these different riffs and I I tried a thing and I left it I wasn't sure I literally I went to make a cup of tea and I came back and I pressed play I nearly shat myself it was like that's it that's it grab the melody was there the melody is like do do really it's actually based on the rhythm an Eamon break does weirdly enough no one knows that once I had the initial riff and where it was going, the tune wrote itself in a day and a half, man. It's ethereal shit. And I get spine tingles every time I hear it, you know, not just for the initial thing, but yeah, after this, the, the, the second version that I did for the album that I just played, you know, my son was listening to some video of some gamer. He was just talking about how, you know, all you can do is try and be the best. He's like, okay, that's what I'm gonna try and be. And that's all I've done for the last 30 years. So like doing this, it's one of the most emotional tunes I've ever written in my life. And it's like full bear your soul to the world music. If you're not writing music and not bearing your soul, literally, what's the fucking point? That's what I think. So, and to be able to bear your soul with some of the most violent music on planet Earth, I think that's, uh, that's a trick to pull, isn't it? <laughs> Listen to that. We're getting to the end of the interview, aren't we? 
Yeah, yeah, all the way. That's tune. Uh, it's an hour and a half. I can't believe we've flown through it all. Micropoint E-Man, 1996 French techno duo. I think this tune just encapsulates everything that is ridiculous and anarchic about hardcore techno. I mean, what other genre do you know that puts fucking elephant noises in music? Tell me. Yes, absolutely. That's, I was like, what the fuck is this like? Don't, do you? That is the uh, the most upper echelons of like ridiculousness at Club Void and the end of like the Skelter Technodrome. But Micropoint also, you know, aside from Manu Lamalan as the DJ and you know my guiding light, you know, Micropoint as a pair of producers, Radium and Den, the two of them, some of the records they made are just they, they completely inspired Def Chant to go kind of, I say, the more industrial route that we did. I mean, Def Chant even ended up releasing a Micropoint EP, you know, we loved them. We ended up releasing on their label, Psychic Genocide, as well, so it was a really incestuous affair, but fucking awesome, man. We understood them, they understood us. You know, when I first went to France, and first, you know, it's like playing this UK music, I was first went to France DJing, there was all these other fucking French hardcore DJs playing Def Chant records. I was like, what the fuck? I had no idea. Anywhere else on the planet was like playing our music. You know, I come back to England, it's like fucking fish. I was like, dude, they're fucking playing our tunes in fucking French pubs. You're not going to believe this shit. Yeah, I'd say within another six months, yeah, I sort of met the Micropoint boys and all of this. And yeah, just some of the most vicious, yet some of the funkiest hardcore ever, ever made full stop, man. Micropoint, they were responsible for that. Go and check a Micropoint album called Neurophony. That was the first album they did. That is literally the basic template to French industrial hardcore. It's fucking insane. And yeah, Def Chant as a label, we sure stole and learned a lot from those two sides of vinyl, man. Fucking seriously. Too, too serious. So yeah, Micropoint, really, really responsible for a lot, but also it's about as ridiculously hardcore as you wanted to get if you were in the Technodrome back in 1997, 98. Definitely. And the whole purpose of talking tunes is to find out new stuff, and I think you just nailed it there. I mean, in the 30 years of listening to Rave, I don't think I've ever heard a tune before that had an elephant on it. You're quite right. <laughs> but breaking the boundaries and finding that new stuff. Hey, tell me one thing I never talked about, and I talk about it to everybody, is Bandface. You played every Bangface, right? Every Bangface weekend, really? I've definitely played all Bangface Weekenders. I first started to play for Bangface in 2005 at the Electra Works. So I do believe there may have been two or three other smaller Bangface events preceding that, but no, my first inauguration was, was in 2005, honestly. First going there, that was it, no going back. It was like, fucking hell, I found you guys, oh my God. It's very rare you can find a place where you can safely, you know, play like a fucking hard drum and bass record followed by a GABA record, followed by an industrial record. You could do that and they didn't even blink, mate. It was like, okay, this is a bit, this is a bit like Belgium and a bit like the breakcore gives me wood thing. This is, okay, it's happening in England. Let's go. This, okay, I was like, fish, I found a place. Dude, you got to find this place. I'd say within about a month, Hellfish had played his first bang face as well. That was like, this is fucking it, mate. Neo Rave is real. Dude, James is a legend. Yeah, I love Bankface, but I'm not going to talk about it too much because we're literally out of time. My tracker here, we've got, got about a minute left, so uh, yeah, what, what did we cover? That's the question next. 
I think we, mate, I tell you, I think we covered a lot there. There's, uh, there's bits we've even covered I've never covered anywhere else. So, Mr. Kush, to be honest, you've done yourself proud there, mate. You definitely crowbarred some shit out of me that I, I didn't think I was going to mention. <laughs> so, we're definitely good, dude. It's definitely been a ride, man. Definitely. Amazing. It's been a pleasure, man. Likewise, absolutely. It's, it, like I say, for a big fanboy, it's, yeah. Absolute honour, mate. Absolute honour. So, yeah, uh, DJ producer, thank you very much for taking the time and uh, speak to you soon. Big respect. Love you, guy. Nice one. Cheers. Bye now. DJ producer on the wheels are still right now. He had a fucking score. You're some more motherfucking awkward.